0: Hi. Hi. Welcome. Back to Hide or Practice.
1: Um. Very exciting. We have Jessie McKee from Two to One A um he's the head of strategy jesse okay. if you wouldn't mind yeah, giving us one. a bit of an intro so this week we're going to be talking about motivation um and 221a i think it's a really good fit with that with that topic
2: totally yeah so 221a um well maybe i should start with myself just because uh, i know yeah. you, you're about practice this is about kind of maybe newcomers And kind of giving them a glimpse into what your life might look like you know 10 15 20 years on from art school oh yes Uh, that that my 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 kind of imagination about what the podcast might be like but um yeah i mean i was trained as a curator so i think that's important to know uh well first artist i guess you know well first political scientist and then (laughs) (laughs) and then curator so there was a few motivations throughout there um but yeah i've worked as a curator pretty much for the last like 10 15 years of my life um and before i've been at 221a which is an artist run center in vancouver which is in canada on the west coast for listeners who don't know canada's geography we're on the pacific Uh, we're about two hours north of seattle um, by train or car and um yeah, so 221A, it was started by, well, I wasn't one of the original group people who started it, but it was started by some folks um, who are leaving the art school here in 2008. Um, and the art school here is called Emily Carr. It's named after a well-known painter with the same name um is an art and design school and they founded a club while they were in art school just because they didn't like the division between art and design you know artists got to sit in their studios alone drink wine think about poetry and philosophy and have romances and the designers were off tasked with like completing corporate reports and like meeting deliverables and like looking at like spreadsheets and those sorts of things and solving problems in the world and so the artists were kind of left out of the problem solving and the designers were left out of the love and romance and philosophizing. So I guess that's kind of why the club started up. And then after school, they moved out and they found uh, a space together, which was in um, Chinatown here in Vancouver, which is not far from the art school. Um, And I would also say that the founders were predominantly um, BIPOC artists, many were um, international students. Um, the, The international students eventually had to go away because their visas expired and they weren't able to stay in Canada for much longer. But the founders who did live here and had family here for some generations, they're Chinese Canadian, Um, And so I want to give a shout out to Brian McBay, and Michelle Fu, who are two of the co-founders who are still at 221A, leading it strong as the executive director and head of equity and finance. Um, And, you know, I think we were when I joined in 2015, they were, you know, your typical artist run space. You had a nice kind of gallery in like an older building in Chinatown. Um, At that point, they'd opened up uh, some studios and some other spaces. Um, So they'd opened up some shared studio space in two buildings. And when I joined, we were just moving into a third building. And so I guess that's become part of our strategy, which is kind of opening up and making cultural space accessible to people. And that's like a main part of what we do. Um, Now we have four studio facilities. We have about 85 Tenants, um, and we changed our artistic program, so it's not we we kind of left the gallery model. Um, We opened up a library in 2017, which kind of centered a fellowship program. So that was pretty important for us was to support artists over longer periods of time to do or designers or writers or developers um, to kind of come up with um, original research. Because we found that that was seriously what was lacking, which was the um, support for artists to do that work um, and develop an idea, not so much a project. So that, you know, once we have the idea and the research is behind it and its importance is behind it, then you can build a community around it, then you can kind of build some critical feedback around it, you can build some fundraising around it and you, and we try to task the artists and designers who do the fellowship program to think about infrastructure, because that's where we're pretty weak right now, in the art world for the younger generations, what we have access to for our resources. So what are these new infrastructures that will carry our practices forward, um, make our spaces possible and make our communities possible as we go forward for the next um, Decade at least because it's gonna it's not looking like smooth sailing straight ahead So we wanted to think of a new structure that could kind of straddle Developing those spaces and maintaining those spaces and producing those spaces all at once and kind of nurture a community at the same time So yeah, and I want to say big thanks to Erica. Actually, we've worked with you on one of our research projects Which is on the blockchain Um, we've been doing it for the past year and a half it's called blockchains and cultural padlocks and you surveyed our studio tenants for the very first time we got a full view and that research was actually super helpful for us because um, we learned a lot and when it came to COVID It was a, obviously it's a, it's a kind of crisis moment in that collective model, but what you told us, which we didn't know before, was that most of the studio tenants' revenues came from wage labor outside of their studio practices. So artists were working as much kind of teaching, gigging, as they were in their studios to be able to cover their studio rent. so that information, could, we could already take that to our stakeholders, and we're, you know, we're kind of lucky in Canada um, to have like s- good public support still. So we were able to get some pretty solid subsidy with that information for our studio tenants, um, and we've been able to kind of keep them in their studios throughout all of COVID, and you know, provide rent relief to them because of that. Wow. So thank you.
1: I'm so glad that stakeholder engagement. I mean, is very interesting.
2: Mm, totally.
1: I'm so glad that it was useful.
2: Yeah.
1: It's, it's just like really exciting to
0: like hear about, you know, doing something for the artists like currently, and then also for the future. So I guess you could ask, I mean, what is like, like, why are you guys doing it? What is the motivation behind it? Because it's so easy to want to work on your own practice or your own situation or work within the, within the existing structures. But you know, you guys are shaking it up and like successfully shaking it up. And like, that is so exciting to me because I've been really like reevaluating like my career and like my choices and like why, and has it been fear or nature or nurture that I've been, you know, not wanting to shake things up until like recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And everybody went for it and like, look what happened. And it's amazing. Um, So why?
2: Why? What's um, the motivation? I mean, I guess it's like it comes from a couple places, but maybe just going back to motivate. Like, okay, so my previous role was at a place called the BAM Center, which you might be familiar with, Eric, mm-hmm. you might be familiar with. Um, it's an artist residency space in kind of, it's kind of like Canada's Aspen, I guess, BAM, you know, or yeah. Canada's Baldassare. Beautiful. Um, It's gorgeous. It's in the Rockies. It's like a village of 6000 people that has uh, about 6 million tourists a year that come to do skiing and hiking and bear watching and like all kinds of stuff. So watch the bears, you know, and then they're, you know, they're not so bad in the summer, you know, they're all right. They're good. They're full of berries and nuts and fish They will not bother you. Um, But yeah that's a it's a a pretty major art center in canada they have about a 67 million dollar a year operating budget there's like 16 buildings nestled on the side of um tunnel mountain around uh the town site there it's dance it's theater it's opera it's filmmaking it's visual art um i ran the gallery there and participated in leading some of the residencies um it had a collection so it was like a small university really but Um, You know, I went through some pretty tragic times when I was there. The leadership scene got way too hyped, you know, how leadership is kind of just leadership and they don't really know kind of what they're leading anymore and they're just leaders for leadership's sake. And so we saw a lot of Tragedy kind of around that place. And, um, you know, I left in 2015 kind of angry at that whole thing, but, you know, realizing that it was kind of like, okay, there's a big situation where our public institutions just don't function anymore. They don't provide the, the, the kind of service to artists or public that, you know, they used to. So I think that um, that was one of my big motivations. And then, you know, I think I arrived at 221A in 2015 really wanting to talk about climate as well because I think being in Banff for so many years and being part of Pittsburgh National Park, we didn't really ever touch on climate. And then I kind of figured out, like, maybe that's because we had buildings called Canada Trans Pipeline Building. And, you know, we were sending artists to go and meet with, um, you know, the inventors of, like, fracking, who were some of the donors and patrons um, of of, of, of the organization. So that kind of complicity had me thinking through what can the art world really do for climate um i spent some time in la in between i should mention that i really loved it i had a good friend who was living there for six months so it was awesome um she really encouraged me to just go independent for a while it was the first time i had been independent in my career so that was great and you know i wanted to come back i wanted to do like you know a year-long program around climate change in 2015 and name it after like an aram siren poem that was like sky every day or something after seeing it in la once and just being enamored with his practice but you know i think the more that i dug into it it was like yeah it's not about the programmatic stuff it's about the infrastructural stuff and so if we want to change the art world's contribution to climate and uh, the ecology i think you just need to start from scratch and it's not about using better making materials or you know more uh, ecological shipping materials or kind of thinking about your data in different ways but Um, It was really like going back to basics and just kind of like retooling and that's what we started with at the organization was like okay let's get off of this hamster wheel or you know as Hito Steiler calls it the economy of presence in the art world and just start figuring out what we need to do and I think if you restructure yourself to be a bit more long term and strategic. Um, I think that's part of the answering the, the, the climate challenge. Um, I really love the Haida Nation here in British Columbia, um, which is unceded territory in the north of the province on an island um, called Haida Gwaii. Um, but you know, the Haida Nation has a 500-year um, plan. How many organizations or communities can you really talk about that have a 500-year plan?
0: 500 and- years.
2: Yeah, and I mean I think that's because they want to counter kind of indigenous colonization which has been about 500 years long now with an alternative future that could be that long um so that also kind of has me thinking through how it works and then also you know being in chinatown and working with um stakeholders in the neighborhood we some of our n- landlords are like chinese benevolent societies um so i think they think in long term and they've really saved the, the the neighborhood from a lot of rapid redevelopment and um so yeah just that time scale i think that's part of the motivation as well
0: it's incredible to think about the whole community a whole you know, just really thinking, I mean, that's so outside yourself, that's not 10 years, that's not 50 years. I mean, that's, that's generational on top of generational, like how, that's really incredible. Um, and to build that kind of foundation would probably help motivate like the generations as they come and other people who come in because they're seeing that this is possible. Um mm-hmm just like tremendous. Um, So you've been talking about also about how you've been, you know, using the data that Erica got, love, love the data. Um, And do you find that that helps like motivate like the stakeholders and like other people when you're trying to get people to, you know, to see what you're doing and why it's impactful and how that is, I mean, like, how do you motivate other people to, you know, get on board?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the data comes second, actually. We're just getting into data now. So that survey work with Erica and stuff we're doing on the blockchain is Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to figure out how to, get our foot in that data pond in like an interesting way, which I think everyone should be doing all organizations, like all people should be figuring out like, what's your data and how are you using it and how is it going out in the world? But first I think it just comes values. And I think it's just being like a values led organization and kind of stepping back and retooling it. Cause if um, I mean, I'm sure it's the same in the States or in Italy, but like if you to register a charity, you kind of have to have a value statement behind you and how does it match with the charitable purpose of what, the state says as a charity and that sort of stuff but if you look at most of these statements for art organizations they are not worth much you know it's just kind of like they're really airy they're you know there's probably white supremacy baked into those notions of culture um that's written into those statements and so it's kind of like we have to undo those you know i don't think culture is just this kind of liberal vitamin that we all take and society gets healthier because it exists and we have access to it but it's more so like you know what does that culture do what are the values behind that culture and so if you rewrite those values to be cooperative and you know collaborative and sustainable and long term your culture is going to look so much more different than the kind of competitive art world that you know, most people are trained into if you go to like a formal art school, whether you're in an undergraduate or kind of graduate degree. Wow!
1: I think one of the best things that I got working with Jesse is really seeing it from a very, very different perspective. And a lot of people don't really see the differences or the nuancing between America and Canada. And I definitely know when I've had many conversations with Jesse, like there is such a big difference Um, and they they seemingly seem slight, but really sort of when you dig down into it, it's so different. And the perspective, maybe it's also like a West Coast thing. Like I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I find that, The west coast because we're quite liberal so we're more holistic in the way that we want to integrate things and i really i really was so interested in like the many conversations that we were having in terms of the this the motivation of what jesse had done and like the work that he had he was doing at at 221A and sort of like being able to go and have this like very inclusive ecosystem that was very different from what I had come across in terms of the research and just like living in different places. Nods. I know. There's a lot of like I know. It's
0: like I'm always trying to be like respectful of other people's like auditory space on a podcast. And so I'm just like nodding and nobody can ever see it. Um, It's like really incredible. Do you think that like, this is just off the cuff. Do you think that like being on the West coast, which is like a little bit more, there's a lot more like nature and ecology, just I think in terms of just how the United States was like colonized in just terms of space and mountains and things that that helps us think in like bigger pictures Because just as you mentioned like West Coast, I was just like, yeah, I was like, I do feel like there's like a little bit more of the, for lack of a better term, that like kind of hippie vibe. And you do think that kind of does have the connotations of like community and future and giving back in a way that I feel like it just, it just comes a little bit naturally. Do you think that that like, in terms of like climate change environment, like that helps like motivate the community? Like that's kind of like a bedrock of, of like those values that you were talking
2: about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, I've lived in Europe, I've lived on the East Coast of North America and cities and stuff, and it's definitely not the same. Like, you know, the West Coast, and you know, I interviewed, um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed William Gibson, who lives <laughs> here in Vancouver, so the science fiction writer who literally
1: oh, I know
2: that. I invented, invented the term cyberspace before the military stole it from him. Um, totally. And you know, he talks about that, that, you know, I think the way that the cities were built into the landscape, um, rather than that, altering the landscape to fit the grid is a total shift of um, experience here. And so if you just look out anywhere, you're just met kind of with this kind of vista, or this big sky or this mountainscape, or this seascape here. And so definitely that has a way that affects you. I mean, you know, this is where Greenpeace came from in Vancouver and in like in the 70s and stuff. So I think that's just part of it. But the longer term thinking probably Yeah, because I think like that's, I mean, as a settler, I think that's fair for me to say that that's part of the colonial imagination right was the settler that would come out here and that would kind of imagine a new world right and you'd get like you know that was supposed to be like New York after people left Europe and then New York kind of became kind of status quo and then people would try to get west and then start anew and leave their troubles behind again and try to make a new world but I don't think it's like new worlding Um, you know I think because a lot of it here is just kind of like It's also dealing with the fact that we are on unceded territory officially in our city. Like in 2014, the city of Vancouver officially said, um, hey, we are both the city of Vancouver and unceded territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish and the Tsleil-Waututh peoples who are the First Nations who are of territory, Mm -hmm. whose land this belongs to. So that's a pretty big statement for a city government to make. It's like pretty bold, and it's it's risky too because then all of a sudden you have this population who's left with this gap right you're like you've got a settler and then you've got an immigrant population and then you've got an indigenous population and we all believe certain things about this place and so now the kind of task is trying to figure out what is in common between us and what can we map out as a future together and so i think just you know like you were Alexis, like you are talking about, just that generational layering. I think we have to do it all the time here just because it kind of like, we have to incorporate that history in everything we do and we have to project a future after it. And so I think that's yeah a big part of what happens here too, as much as the landscape. That's
0: so incredible. Um, I didn't know that about Vancouver. I think that's really, I'm sure that some of those meetings that went into doing that were probably pretty vicious, but... Seems like they came out on the right side. So that is hopeful. Man, that was, it's just like a real little little shot of hope that I have for the optimistic future that some people are doing the fucking hard work. And I really appreciate it. Um, Can I ask what you guys have now that this is like COVID and everything that's going on, like what are you seeing that people are looking at like institutionally and like infrastructurally? That's not a word I just made up, but the... (laughs) (laughs) that that, are people like coming up with like really good ideas or bad ideas or just excited or scared I mean like what are you seeing in like the artists who are working and the people who are looking into like infrastructure especially now that like this might be the real chance to have a clean lack of a better word clean slate to start and build new yeah
2: um I mean I think I mean, we haven't really been trying to do, push things too much during COVID. It's really just, okay, this is an opportunity to actually slow down and Mm -hmm. work on capacity, work on access. Um, Those have been two of the things that we've been working on, but from some of the artists and designers we're working with, totally like this is the moment to push those ideas forward, like the Overton window, you know, which is like, you know, your possibility of change making is wide open right now. And so it's kind of like push these ideas through, build your communities behind them, like test them out, see what's happening. So, you know, um, one group that we're working with through our blockchain project, um, they're called DOMA. Um, and it's led by Francis Sang, who's a developer in New York and, um, Maxim Rukmanenko, who's an architect um, who runs the Center for Spatial Technologies in, in Kiev, Francesco Sebregondi, who's an architect and a member of um, forensic architecture between London and Paris. They're pretty amazing guys. And they've figured out, you know, they've got a proposal for a housing cooperative that could really take off. Um, You know, and I think like thinking through a platform cooperative that could manage housing for a generation that's been walked out of property access is pretty huge. And I think the ideas behind it are agent. You can check them out at doma.city for some more info. Um, We don't, we have a little bit on our website site but they have way more obviously and uh, i think that yeah that kind of like just getting really excited about those ideas and trying to find as much support for them right now is kind of like what we want to do i think it's also a good time to just kind of really just look at individual authorship and just kind of just Play, you know, break that down a little bit and just kind of get people together on the same idea and um, the same intention and the same plan and just figure out what you can contribute to that plan rather than saying which aspect of that plan is yours to own and then to kind of further exploit or kind of use as you see fit in your own practice. So um, yeah, just redrawing those collaborative kind of networks is, uh, is, is, is a good place right now.
1: I love that. It makes it sound like we're so like holistic.
0: <laughs> it does. I love it. Um, I have a like a really quick like admin kind of question. So you guys started a library, um, which is like the most exciting thing in the world to me. How did you guys get those like resources? Like what was, I mean, just to go with the theme, what was the motivation behind that? I mean, obviously it was like to try to get people to start being able to do the research, but how were you, I mean,
2: how do you start a library from scratch? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, but also it's not like a generalist library. We're not trying yeah. to be like the city library or anything like that.
0: No, but like the, mm-hmm. the specialer books, the, the more special, the more special the prices can
2: be yeah. sometimes. Exactly. So I think the yeah, thinking through funding wise, like we already had, funding from the Arts Council. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think in 2017, there was a big opportunity for change in your organizational model because the, you know, Justin Trudeau made a bunch of new cultural money available in his first term. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that was easy for us. We just kind of made the case about the research model, the fellowships, infrastructure, having kind of like a co-working learning space. And so that's kind of what we built it out of. And then I would say that the collection itself was then built up from the researchers that we hired. so yeah it was kind of um, it was kind of thinking through their practice and so as you're doing your research actually help us assemble the collection. So we actually opened up quite empty. Oh, wow. um, we, we, we opened up with just the books that the organization had collected kind of throughout its previous 10 year operation pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, and then the next 10 years, we're going to be building a library of research made by the fellows. And so over time that would build up, um, people would come and consult that stuff. We could, pro- we would program out of stuff that came into the collection. So, you know, certain new things might inspire kind of a program or an event or a talk. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of like, because I think like the next 10 years are going to be pretty historical. We might feel it as messy and chaotic, but, you know, I think in the future, future people will look back at the decade the 2020s as a pretty um, tumultuous and kind of pivotal time so kind of having an archive together of that period of what artists are thinking about what designers are thinking about as we're trying to reimagine alternatives that's going to be something that's important I think in the future and so collections are always for the future not so much the present or the past yeah I love
0: that like I feel like that just really goes like through the layers of of everything it's just like you start with the values you start with the ideas and like that inspiration and then you like let that lead you so like Mm -hmm. that's what's leading the organization that's what's leading the library and you build something like really true i bet i'm not there i can't go i would love to i would love to be in this library but no one can like that idea
2: yeah yeah, it's closed because yeah obviously
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm coming
1: anyway Are we at the time where we're Almost. going to ask Jesse, what have you read and what have you heard and what have you watched this week?
2: What have I read? Um, I've been reading a new book by, I'm uh, not finished yet by Stephanie Wakefield. She's an urban geographer in Miami. I would highly recommend it. It's called um, the Anthropocene back loop operating in unsafe you know unsafe operating space uh, maybe should i just find the title and then we can
0: yeah you can email to me i'll put it in the blurb
2: okay cool um that was good and i think what's really important about that idea is um what is it? the back loop is like the understudied side of uh, the ecosystem and that's what happens when like the ecosystem breaks down and those stable actors previously, like if you could imagine like uh, governments and institutions being the stable actors or certain things in a physical environment, like a water source and pollen or those sorts of things, that's in the when the ecosystem breaks down, that's when they start to kind of meet new potential actors and that's when they mate and then things start to happen between them and then that's when a new ecosystem grows out of the old one um, as it's breaking down so she's using that to kind of study human history so if we went through a period of like extraction and colonization and slavery and then we went through a stable period of um, you know neoliberal kind of uh, globalization and kind of petrol fuels and stable climates um, what comes next is we'll find out but we're going through the breakdown now and how that kind of comes together is um, up to us and so it's a pretty it's a it's, it sticks on the kind of hopeful message that it's not all doom and gloom it's not going to be easy but we're going to have to retool and kind of rebuild um, watching um oh uh i mean i guess we watched i watched the new will ferrell movie which was pretty funny is it I mean, fun it's good. I mean, I'm a Eurovision on Netflix. Like yeah, it's like a Eurovision kind of yeah. Stuff. I saw that. Like him and Rachel McAdams, or like this Icelandic duo who want to go in Eurovision, but they absolutely suck. So you know, I love Eurovision. It's a. It's a. You know, I did my time in Europe. I would watch it all the time. I never went, but it was cool. It's it's a good laugh if you want to have some fun. It's long, it's like two hours. Um, yeah, and listening, I guess, you know, I'm a big fan of um, podcasts. So um, thanks for inviting me on. Now I know about yours. Uh, I really love New Models. They're great um, in Berlin, amazing crew. Joshua Cidarella kind of in, um, in New York, he's doing some good work, an artist as well on the podcast space. And then I just became a patron of um, Montez Press Radio. So I'm excited to dig into their archive in the next couple of weeks and stuff too.
1: Super cool. i only i love this feeling of like speaking to jesse because he he reads and watches and like knows things that i never know about so i i always learn so much and then i go home and i'm like i'm gonna look up all this stuff
0: i know i'm gonna have to like do a whole like little like recommended section for this because i know people are gonna want to like get in on what you're getting because it's because it seems like it's the good stuff Um, Okay. Can we ask you to tell our lovely listeners how to find you on the interwebs?
2: Yeah. Um, So our website is uh, 221a.ca. That's a pretty good place to central hub. Um, Twitter at 221AWEEE. And we're also on Instagram with the same handle, 221AWEEE.
1: We will definitely put that into the blurb put it into the
0: blurb so every all the links in the blurb and thank you so much for joining us so it was much. been just a pleasure and um extremely inspiring i might may i say that your motivation and motives have motivated me
1: good well I carry
0: what it, is. it is. all right just thank Enjoy you so much day.